Welcome to In Conversation, a series of captivating and insightful dialogues with leading writers, artists, and spiritual teachers. In Conversation is a production of Banyan Books and Sound. An oasis in Vancouver since 1970, Banyan is a gathering place of the world's wisdom and healing traditions. Come by for a visit or find us at banyan.com for live events, books, and more. This is Farah, and I'm honored to be on the phone here with Pico Iyer, who is a best-selling author of a dozen books, and he's also a travel writer who lives in rural Japan and spends part of the year in a Benedictine monastery in California. His book, The Art of Stillness, is what we're here to talk about, and I'm so happy to be with you through the wonders of technology to talk about a subject that's so relevant to our modern lives. I'm delighted to be talking to you. I um, I thought I'd start by asking you a little bit about why stillness is so important. Well, I've got to confess, uh, it was an editor at TED Books. So TED Talks decided to begin a publishing line. And when they did, uh, four years ago, an editor came to me and almost said, well, you're a travel writer and you've been everywhere from North Korea to Easter Island. Have you never thought of sitting still? Why don't you do a book about sitting still? And when she suggested that, I thought, well, it's an interesting idea, but it's a little nebulous and a little far from most people's lives. And I never guessed, even four years ago, that stillness, which has always been a great luxury in most lives, would become such a necessity. I think most of us are starving for stillness. We're more overwhelmed than ever, just in our daily lives, whether at work or at home. Uh, and we're craving just an open space, a chance to uh, clear our heads and um, and still our minds. So stillness, which, of course, is at the heart of Jesus' trips into the wilderness and the Buddha's meditation practice and all the great religious traditions of the world, we've always known it's a useful thing. But we've never known till now, I think, that it's such an indispensable thing. And I know as a traveler... <clears throat> When I began traveling and writing 30, 35 years ago, I was hungry to get information. And now, when I travel, I think I'm often trying to get away from information. I'm trying to find as simple and open and spacious a world as I can get. And I'm struck at how many of my friends and colleagues have that same longing. So when you first started this book and decided to dip your toes into the art of stillness, what impact has that had on your own life? Well, I think when I started this book, really what I tried to do was think about uh, the models of stillness that I had enjoyed in my life so far. Uh, The first was His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Uh, I'm lucky enough to have been talking and traveling with him for 43 years now. And every November, I travel across Japan with him, right by his side, having lunch with him every day and sitting in on all his private meetings. And as you know, I'm sure, because I've actually been with the Dalai Lama in Vancouver and he goes there a lot, uh, he's probably one of the busiest people on the planet, and yet he has time for everybody. And what I witness traveling with him is that 
he never takes a single break over the course of an eight-hour day. I'm 22 years younger than he is, and I'm exhausted just watching him go through his day. But because he starts his day with four hours of meditation, it gives him a clarity and a direction and an inner stillness that carries him through this rather tumultuous life. So I thought about him. I thought about maybe my other great teacher, uh, Leonard Cohen, the wonderful Canadian, uh, whom, with whom I used to spend time in his monastery and who had this great gift for silence, which I think is part of what people were hearing when they responded to his concerts and his songs, that they came from a very deep place and that that place had to do with sitting still sometimes for 18 hours a day when he was uh, living in his monastery. And I think the third um, source I drew upon was just my own experience as uh, somebody in the working world and as a traveler. And I knew that as a traveler, you can only really be moved when you're sitting still. In other words, travelers are in the business of movement, but the movement is not means to stillness. So when I think about the great moments of my traveling life, I think about sitting in front of a flickering candle in Jerusalem or being atop um, a hill surrounded by absolute silence in Iceland or being in Mongolia where you can see a little tent 40 miles away. And I think many travelers have this sensation that what really deepens and enriches us at the fundamental level is the stillness that we have found through our movement. So uh, when I was suddenly asked to write a book on stillness, I just let my mind go to the still people and the still moments in my life. And I realized that um, they were the ones who had taught me more than anybody. And how do you continue to integrate those practices into your daily life and into your travel life? Well, uh, it's interesting. I'm going to be uh, at Hollyhock talking about this and, uh, and probably will try and pass on some practical tips for doing this. But for example, although I'm a fully functioning journalist, I've never used a cell phone. Uh, when I was in my 20s, I was uh, on a 20, in the 25th floor office in Midtown Manhattan writing for Time magazine. Very, very fast-paced life, uh, getting the news as soon as it happened and then turning out news articles. And it was exhilarating, and I really learned a lot from that. But because I felt I was learning a lot about speed and movement, I went straight from Time magazine to uh, the back streets of Kyoto to live in a temple. And I lived for a year in a single room which didn't have its own toilet or telephone or, or even bed, actually. And I thought, having learned about acceleration in midtown Manhattan, I should learn about slowness in this contemplative city of Kyoto. And so I, I'm certainly no expert on any of this. But what I've found is I can only function with purpose and clarity and sanity um, if I have a strong foundation. And that foundation only comes out of stillness and silence. So, for example, one thing I've done for 26 years, as you mentioned in your introduction, is to go every season on retreat to a Benedictine hermitage. And initially I felt a bit of a fraud because I'm not a Catholic. I, I don't participate in the services there. But I found that just 72 hours of absolute silence to take walks, to read, to write, or best of all, to do nothing, uh, was like the oil change that I take my car in for every few months, or like um, the recharging that every one of our devices needs, except we're so keen on recharging our devices, some, these days we forget about recharging ourselves. 
And so it's nothing very esoteric or complicated. But I think the busier you are, uh, the more you need to liberate yourself from your busyness. Because since the beginning of time in both East and West, every wise soul has known that anyone who's wise is seldom too busy and anyone who's busy is seldom too wise and probably seldom too happy or kind. And I think nowadays a lot of us are caught up in this vicious cycle where we're in such a hurry we can't see what a hurry we're in and we have to break it in some dramatic way. So whether it's by taking a hike or going for a run or practicing yoga or going on retreat to a monastery, I think nearly everybody is doing this already but we all know that we have to do even more of it because the world is accelerating with every passing moment. And so many of my friends now tell me they're feeling dizzy. And if they're feeling dizzy now, I fear they will be a hundred times dizzier 10 years from now because um, technology is uh, increasing at an exponential pace. And so if they have that intense dizziness in the future, it's right now that we have to get our balance and um, our, our sanity. So I know from listening to your audiobook, The Art of Stillness, that you speak about the principle of the Sabbath. Can you speak about that now? Well, one interesting thing for me as a traveler is that one of my biggest surprises going everywhere in the world <laughs> is to find that it's the people who are at the forefront of creating our modern technologies who are most keen to set limits on them. So, for example, when I go to Silicon Valley, where I go quite often, I find that so many of the technicians at Google and Apple and Facebook maintain internet Sabbaths. So they go completely offline for 24 or 48, even 72 hours every week so that they will have something more useful and fresh to offer when they go online again on Monday morning. In other words, the, the kings and queens of technology realize that technology has given us everything except a sense of how to make wise and discerning use of technology. And for that, we really have to be offline. I don't think our computers are going to give us the answer. And they call it an internet net, net Sabbath. Other people talk about digital detox. But I think there's a great wisdom in that classic Judaic tradition of taking at least one day off a week so that you can do justice to the other six days. And uh, as you probably remember in the Old Testament, uh, God even uh, sentences to death somebody who is guilty of working on the Sabbath. So urgent a necessity is it to uh, take a break. And I think if I were to say that even to myself, but certainly to many of my friends and colleagues, they would say, we're too busy. There's no way we can afford to take a day off. But I think if they're too busy, um, they can't really begin to bring the best of themselves to their, their friends and their loved ones. I remember I was um, once talking to somebody about these kind of things, and uh, a person asked me um, from the audience, well, it's easy for you to say this as a travel writer in California, but what about me? I'm a really busy mom, and I've got two little kids, and I'm trying to start my own business. How can I begin to do this? You know, how can I even dare to think about this? And as I heard her voice, I heard such stress and almost anger in her voice that I thought that if she could just give herself 30 minutes off, she'd actually be helping her kids a lot more because children are sensitive and they know if their parents are pushing themselves too hard and that in fact somebody in a 
difficult situation like that is exactly the person who needs to find a sister or a husband or a mother or a friend to say, can you just look after my kids for 30 minutes so I can take a walk or I can just sit quietly in a room? And then I think she would have even more to give to her kids. So I think there's no exception to this. And I think one thing that speaks to me personally is that none of this has anything to do with religion. I think it's really um, more a matter of health, just mental health. And I notice we have this funny double standard. A, a few years ago, I went for my annual physical checkup, and my doctor looked at my blood test results, and he said that I seemed fine, but he said, you're not getting any younger, so you should go to a health club and exercise for 30 minutes every day. And the minute he said that, I signed up for the health club, and it's actually become one of the highlights of my day, just 30 minutes on the treadmill. But when another friend of mine said to me, you know, you work so hard and you travel so much, you need just to spend 30 minutes sitting quietly in a room, uh, going to the inner health club, as it were, I said, no way, I don't have time. And later I realized what a silly and short-sighted answer that was, and that if I have time to do what's good for my body, it's even more important. Uh, I do what's good for my mind and my spirit, because that's much more essential to um, our well-being. I, I also noticed, for example, that most, many of my friends now are very particular about what they eat. They're very anxious that what they eat should be locally sourced and uh, sustainable and organic and healthy, which is wonderful. But having eaten this very nutritious and healthy food, they go home and they crash out in front of CNN or the latest Kim Kardashian update or spend the day scrolling through the internet. Um, giving themselves sort of junk food of the spirit, even though they're taking such pains not to take actual physical junk food. Um, and so in a time when we care so much about protecting our bodies, which is terrific, uh, we sometimes neglect our minds. Now, you mentioned in the example about the mother that taking time out and, and doing the things that nourish ourselves can have an impact on the relationships around us. Can you elaborate on the connection between unplugging and relationships? Yes. Um, so every three months when I go on a retreat, and I'll be doing this next week, as I get in my car and drive to the monastery, there are a million reasons for me not to do it. I feel really guilty to be leaving my aging mother behind. Uh, I feel worried because there are a thousand urgent text messages or emails coming from my bosses that I'm going to ignore for 72 hours. I feel wistful because I'm missing a friend's birthday party. There are so many reasons not to do it. But I would say within 30 minutes of arriving in the monastery and just being surrounded by silence and liberation from any to-do list or agenda or deadline, I feel so refreshed so calm and so happy that I know instantly that as soon as I drive back 71 hours later, I will have so much more to give to my mother and to my bosses and to my friends. And that's always the case. And they can feel the difference and, and benefit from it. Because if I'm just racing from thing to thing without ever stopping, all I'm really sharing with my 86-year-old mother is my exhaustion and my distractedness and shouting, you know, see you later as I race off to uh, the next conference call or handle the next email. And as soon as I come back from three days without all this, she can see on my face, she can hear in my voice, and most of all, she can feel in my presence that 
my level of attention, my level of intimacy are much greater than they were before, and that I have so much more to give her and so much more to take in from her. I, I feel that really the two ultimate luxuries of life are attention and intimacy. And if we succumb to weapons of mass distraction and to the clamorous commons of TV and the internet and whatever, um, we're not really able to bring very much of ourselves to anything, to ourselves or um, to the people around us. And I, I suppose partly I see this as a matter of uh, health, as I mentioned, but also I see this as a matter of happiness. And I think sometimes we have a great gift for running away from our happiness and then wondering why we feel so lost and confused. And I sometimes will tell myself, if I'm really happy to be racing from text message to conference call to CNN breaking news update to email, I should certainly continue. But I think something inside me that's wiser than my conscious mind realizes that's not where my happiness lies. My happiness lies in absorption, in forgetting myself, in having a really deep conversation with a friend or sharing an intimate moment with my wife or losing myself in a, in a concert or a, a baseball game or whatever it might be. Um, and by depriving myself of the chance of sharing three undistracted hours with my mother or my wife or my friend, I'm doing them out of happiness and I'm really doing myself out of it too. Now, speaking about happiness, I know that in your book you also talk about the joy of simplicity. What's the connection between happiness and simplicity? Yes, and I suppose for me, the fewer things I have to worry about, the happier I am. The fewer <laughs> things I have to think about, the more liberated I am. So, as I was saying, uh, I, I used to have an apartment uh, in my 20s on Park Avenue in New York City and this very glamorous seeming job flying around the world and writing for Time magazine. And uh, I left that for the back streets of Japan. And I've now lived 30 years in Japan. My wife and I and formerly our two kids share this very small rented two-room apartment. We don't have a car. We don't have any media. As I say, I've never used a cell phone. And every day lasts for a thousand hours. It really feels like every day is an eternity. So I wake up and uh, I spend my fi first five hours writing. And at the end of that, I still have 11 hours free to take walks around the neighborhood, to go and sit out on the terrace and, um, and read a book for an hour without any distractions, to go to the health club, to have a long conversation with my wife, to to answer my emails and still have time left over. And I've never had that abundance of time in um, when I was in New York City or even when I come back to California, as I'm doing right now, and stay in my mother's house. And I realized that because, you know, every morning when I'm talking to my wife, I'm not thinking about taking the car in for a smoke test. I'm not thinking about the thousand complications of a life that I had before in New York City. I'm giving myself fully to my wife. I'm listening to her, and she's listening very deeply to me. And that feels much richer than cutting our day up into a thousand little chores that aren't actually making our lives any better or, or happier. So um, I made a very conscious decision to move in the direction of simplicity. And the only thing I can say after 
30 years of living in a pretty stripped down life is <laughs> I wish it were even more stripped down. You know, I had I had one advantage, I think, which is that in my early 30s, uh, my family house burned to the ground here in California, and I lost everything I own in the world. Uh, that evening, I bought a toothbrush, and the next day, that toothbrush was the only thing I had. I lost all my possessions and really all my plans, and I lost the next three books and the next eight years of writing I was going to do, and I was back to ground zero. And as I started to pick up my life after that, I realized that I didn't need to replace very much, that in fact, uh, nearly all the stuff I had, and there was lots of it before, was excess, and I could live actually more happily without it. And I quickly found that the things that I could replace, books and clothes and furniture, I really didn't need, so I, I didn't replace any of them. And the things I couldn't replace, which memories and handwritten notes and mementos, um, that was what was valuable, but they were gone. So in some ways, that gave me a crash course in simplicity, moving overnight in the space of three hours from quite a large house cluttered with stuff to zero and realizing that actually zero opened up many more opportunities for me. Uh, and it was right after that I decided to move full-time to Japan where I just have one shelf of books and I guess a couple of drawers of clothes and I never miss anything. And when I was living in New York City, I had a lot more stuff, but I was missing something, essential. I think I was missing freedom and the chance and space to think and, um, and a sense of possibility on, on wide horizon. So again, I think sometimes some of us, myself included, attempted to fill our lives with physical, tangible stuff when it's really the intangible, so that the only thing that sustains us. And when I hear you speak about spaciousness, what I think about is creativity, actually, and how creativity is possible when there's space. Have you found it to be true for you? Well, I love that you say that. That's a beautiful way of saying it. Yes. And I think creativity with a big C, um, if you're involved in the arts or crafts in some ways, but just creativity about your life and thinking about what's important to you. And when when I go um, on retreat uh, and I'm in a small room and there's nothing much around me, the first thing I notice is what I really care about. Suddenly my priorities and proportions become very clear. And I remember these are the important people in my life. These are the things that I want to be giving my time to. And when I'm racing around town and I have a thousand errands to run, I never see very clearly what my proportions or, um, or priorities are. So just in terms of making a creative life that whereby, like Thoreau, you can say at the end of your life, um, you, you never have to say, I haven't lived. In other words, it, you live the life that you feel um, is the richest. Uh, spaciousness is a huge inspiration. And for what I do as a writer, which involves a, a different kind of creativity, yes, I would say the great luxury <clears throat> of the writing life is that I spend five hours every day just sitting still, um, not doing anything except trying to sift through my thoughts, cut through my illusions, and get past my projections. But it's a great luxury that I, for a living, can essentially perform a kind of meditation and can try to get to that spaciousness that, as you say, itself um, inspires creativity. But yes, indeed, it's, it's like the difference between um, if you've got a book in front of you 
there's lots of space in the margins for writing things and coming up with all kinds of inventions. And there's almost no space in the main text because it's already full of words. And, of course, the Japanese, more than anyone, have worked out how the emptier the room is, the more you can fill it with something within. And so the classic Japanese tea house room uh, looks like a monastic room. There's just one vase, one scroll, and nothing else there. And by emptying the, the room of all its clutter and distraction, they're creating a spaciousness that, just as you said, invites and encourages uh, imagination, creativity, and, and fullness. If a room is empty, I feel very, very full. And if a room is very cluttered, I feel very empty. Now, you've mentioned several times the word luxury. And yet, when I hear you speak about these things, they seem to be necessities. They are luxuries in the sense that not many people have them. But, you know, space and stillness seem really to be essential foods for human, good human health. Yes. I, no, I absolutely agree with you. And I would say that they, they're, they're luxuries that are necessities. In other words, I think we've, we're doing two things that are a little counterproductive in our lives often nowadays. One is to hunger after luxuries, so-called, that are not making us very happy, uh, which are often physical luxuries. For example, my mother has quite an expensive car, and it's so expensive, things are always going wrong with it. Um, and it's very expensive to keep, and it's so sensitive, I can barely drive it down the block without something, alarms going off. I have a very, very simple car, and it seems to run forever. So there's that kind of luxury, but I think your question is more about, um, indeed, I've been talking about the luxury of silence and spaciousness, and the beauty of that is it's a luxury that's at our fingertips. In other words, whoever is listening to our talk right now, however busy she is in her office, however... Um, full and over full his life may be at home, he can at any point decide to stop for 30 minutes or two days or an hour every day. And I, as I say, I think almost everybody is doing this already just to survive in the modern world. But, um, but it's, it's the thing without which we couldn't live. And it's interesting how even corporations now give uh, their employees cell phones that don't function overnight, or even companies are trying to prevent their employees from working too hard because they know how counterproductive uh, it is and how by working too hard, you're doing yourself out of those luxuries that you were rightly highlighting, which have to do with uh, open space, emptiness, and um, sort of peace, peace of mind. I mean, peace of mind is one of the great luxuries and nobody outside us is going to give it to us. It's, it's up to us to find it. And I notice so many of my colleagues now, if I send them a message, I, I don't hear back from them for five months maybe. And when finally I do hear back from them, they'll say, I'm really sorry, but things have been crazy around here. And I hear that more and more often. And I think if things are crazy, things are never going to get more sane. It's only we who can bring the sanity to it. So I think it's up to us to claim those necessities that are also luxuries, because the world is just going to keep on accelerating, and uh, left to its own devices, it'll do us out of every little piece of um, sanity and uh, calm that we have. So lastly, I'd like just to talk about something that you mentioned a little bit in your writings, and that is the inner world and the outer world. 
how are they connected and what is the thread between inner and outer? Uh, I think the outer world is entirely a reflection of the inner. So, for example, I, I was mentioning the forest fire that destroyed my house some years ago, and it destroyed 500 other houses here in this town. And I noticed in the aftermath of the fire, everybody had been through more or less the same experience, and everybody had been reduced to zero. And some people, after a period of adjustment, uh, saw that this could liberate them, this could allow them to live somewhere else, to do something different with their lives, to to not replace many things, as I was saying. And some people were traumatized, and still are many years later. And that's just a handy example of how whatever happens to us in our lives, the same event is happening to many, many people, but each of us responds in a different way, because that's a reflection of um, our inner universe. Um, the great mystic Meister Eckhart, centuries ago, said, as long as the inner work is strong, the outer work will never be puny. And I think it goes to what you were saying so wonderfully about spaciousness and creativity, that if you work hard enough on trying to just open up some space inside yourselves, then whether it's your relationships or your work or your art or your conversation, all of that will be the beneficiary. That everything that happens in the world is just a reflection of um, how we've prepared ourselves for it. And I know this as a traveler. Um, let's say you take an angry man to Tibet. As soon as he gets off the plane in Lhasa, he's going to be complaining about the altitude or the weather or something. In other words, he's just as angry as he was before. And you take a very calm person to a war zone, and she usually is as calm in Beirut or even Baghdad as she would have been in Los Angeles or Vancouver, uh, which again is just a simple reminder of the fact that it's never circumstances that make our lives. It's what we do with circumstances. And what we do with circumstances is a result of the person that we have made, the inner world and the inner landscape that we have either cultivated or neglected, which is why um, it really comes back to why stillness might be important, because what we do in the world is only going to be as good as um, the foundations and the clarity and the stillness that we have uh, created inside ourselves. Um, and that's why even a big financier like J.P. Morgan a hundred years ago said wonderfully he could never achieve in 12 months what he achieved in 10 months. He gave himself two full months of holiday every year just in order to do more with his job. Um, now, his job was making money, and I don't think that's always the most useful thing in life. But whatever our, our, our longings are in life, the way that we best serve them is by working hard on, um, on the inner landscape. And so I think um, these are some of the things. I, I actually was giving a, a workshop at the um, TED conference in Vancouver last year on some of these things. And I'm so excited. I'm well, be at Hollyhock, um, sharing some of these ideas with uh, others in British Columbia. Well, you certainly built a very compelling case for how important it is to attend to the inner world and create space and stillness and how powerful that is in our relationships and in our effectiveness in the world. Well, thank you. And I must say, um, 
I, un- I know that I'm not saying anything that everybody doesn't know. In other words, I think everybody listening to our conversation knows this in some part of ourself, herself, but it's so easy to forget it or mislay it in our distracted world. And so I think I know nothing more than anybody else, but the one thing I can do perhaps is say something that reminds the listener, oh yeah, that is what I think, and that is what I believe and know, but sometimes it gets lost. So... Uh, mm-hmm. Um, I think everyone listening to this in the best part of herself or himself would probably say word for word the same. It's almost just universal human common sense. Whatever your station in life, whatever your tradition or religion, I think we this is a universal that we all know and, and share, which is wonderful. Absolutely. And I always find that with the wisdom or truth, it never gets tiring to listen to it or hear it. No, that's right. And then now I find there's there's so much else coming into us and we're hearing so many other things that, as they say, we have to cut through the noise to hear actually the most important thing, which is, is wisdom. But uh, luckily, there are lots of people sharing it and it's just up to us to make sure we're turning an ear and a responsive, attentive ear to them as well as to... CNN and the New York Times and Kim Kardashian. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure, and I thank you so much for all the insights and stories that you've shared with us today. Thank you very much. It's been really a delight, and I'm looking forward to coming back to British Columbia. You've been listening to In Conversation, a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound. Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970.